Oh man, it's already, y'all are in the overflow, just so you know. This, we already had, we didn't even have a reflection. I preached so long in the first service, so. Oh, I hope you brought your money because it's going to be a good one today. So, um, we are starting a series called Nehemiah. Uh, for those of you that didn't grow up in church, uh, you probably haven't got to this one yet because it's just buried in there in the Old Testament. And um, it's a great book. Uh, we brainstorm periodically as a staff and uh, we talk about different series that we'd like to do in the future. And so uh, this one was actually brought to the table, I don't know if it was two years ago or three years ago. And um, our children's pastor, Jill, has been wanting to do this that long. And um, I said, not yet, not yet. I said, we're, there, we're gonna get to a definitive moment. And don't know what that was, because you know the building wasn't built or wasn't being built and hadn't been sold as this building, da 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 da. But uh, you know, now we feel like you know it was time. Is anybody ready for a little little Nehemiah? Y'all feel? And uh, for those of you who don't know Nehemiah, he built something, and we're building something. So that, that that'll make sense later. Um, but we called it "Prove It" because you're going to find that Nehemiah had this burden that he was placed on him, and and then as a result of that burden, he had to decide whether he believed it enough to work for it and to sacrifice for it. And that was the proving it part. And I think that our church is poised uh, to have that same opportunity to prove it. Uh, before we get rolling today though, I'll give you a, a quick appetizer to kind of set your uh, brain in the right place, okay? Um, we have a, a financial pastor at our church, uh, some of you know, his name is Ben Berberick. Uh, Benjamin Berberick, have you all seen him? This is the guy with the beard. Um, uh, he's uh, one of the nicest servant-hearted guys that you will ever meet. Um, very different than me um, in that regard. So he's just super nice, and sometimes I come across as more direct, right? Um, so, uh, you know, whenever you see certain people, I'm one of those types of persons that when I meet someone, I, I like to figure out what they do, uh, why they got into that, why they're passionate about that. Um, but I have found through all of those conversations that I myself, um, you know, I know what I am good at and I know what I am not good at. Benjamin is very, very handy. Okay. So he can fix anything, you know, something in your house, he can fix it, you know, a car, he can fix it. And he picked up this project, a 1978 MG, and uh, it was completely locked up. And he started rebuilding that motor. And after he got it running, he came by with his lovely bride. And I was just getting out of back surgery. Next photo. And he came and picked me up. And I'm going to tell you, getting in that little thing, uh, it was uh, easy into it, you know, uh, kind of thing. And he took me for a little spin and so excited, you know, because he, he, he picked it up and it was a relic, right? It was, it was just sitting there in someone's garage, not moving, unable to move. And uh, then I think we got a last one, him posing, you know, doesn't he look, doesn't he look so sweet? Um, so anyway, uh, as we're thinking about that this morning, I wanted you to begin thinking, whenever Ben is able to do these things, I'm going to tell I look at that and I go, I could never do that. I could never do that. But just by curious, uh, I, I, I did a couple uh, questions in the first service. How many guys in here could rebuild a motor if you had to? Just by show of hands, show of hands. Okay, less people mechanically inclined. I'm just taking notes because sometimes I need those people in my life. 
Um, I got no skill. I mean, and I'm not ashamed to say it. No skill whatsoever. If you said, Tim, I'm going to give you 20 years, and here are the parts, and you have YouTube, and you had to put it back. No, it wouldn't happen. It wouldn't happen. I'd just die, okay? So um, whenever I look at people that have those skills, I'm, I'm fascinated because I like to pick up things too, and you know, I would love to be able to fix something like that. And I think that whenever we think about Nehemiah, we're going to find that, that he saw his nation. He saw his people, that they were relics. They had been dispersed because of their disobedience. And now he's trying to reclaim them. And whenever Ben is able to put that motor back together and then start it up and it actually cranks, I know that for a mechanically minded person, that little check mark that you get out of fixing something, like if you've ever seen a man try to fix something, they feel like they screwed the light bulb in and it turned on. They like, yeah, like roar, right? That's just, that's just the way they are. And so I'm sure that that was very exciting for him as he fixed that. And, and I think that our church, the way that we are moving and the progression that we have, you know, we're... I don't know, five months out from something very exciting. And um, I want you guys to know that, man, there's, there's a lot of opportunities for us. And I think that we need everyone um, in order to do what we're getting ready to do. And I think that Nehemiah is going to push us um, towards uh, the Easter uh, march. And so I hope that as you start this morning's message, you would begin thinking, um, are there any areas of your life that are locked up? Are there any areas of your life that aren't running very well? Are there any areas of your life that are sputtering along? Because if so, I have some really good news for you that when we follow Nehemiah's method, we can all make it back. We can all make it back to the perfect place that God wants us. And God has a life for you that he wants you to live. He want, has a life that he intends to build through you. And then we're gonna find there's some other people around you that you're gonna have to care about as we go through this process. So as we start today, just know, forewarning, forewarning, this is gonna be a challenging message. Um, you, you, you are going to be challenged. At some juncture today, you, you're, I'm going to be looking right in your eyes and I'm going to say something to you and you're going to be like, oh, I'm not ready for that. Okay. So just fair warning. Okay. You guys ready? Ready to get started? Okay. Um, Nehemiah chapter one, uh, a lot of weird names. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, um, in the month of Kislev in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa. Now, you might say, Tim, you could probably skip that one. Um, but believe it or not, that Susa uh, name is, is kind of important um, geographically. Um, as you know, a lot of anthropologists, that's what they use uh, to study past historical cultures. They use the Bible because it's so reliable. Amazing, huh? And so anyway, um, so as they are studying these cultures, you know, we know where Susa was. It was part of the Persian Empire. Um, which the Persians defeated the Babylonians. And I know, I know, glaze over, oh, what are you talking about? Um, so that's going to be important because the Israelites, because of their disobedience, God allowed them to be conquered and then they were taken captive up to this Babylonian empire, Nebuchadnezzar. I don't know if you might have heard of him. And so, um, VeggieTales, Nebuchadnezzar, right? Okay. So that was the super Christian people, my wife. Anyway, um, so... Uh, then they were defeated by the Persians and Nehemiah was one of the, they, they took the best and the brightest from the Israelites and they, they put them in positions of influence and leadership. And so Nehemiah was one of those guys and he, was, he wasn't taken in captivity, he was born in captivity. So as we go through this whole story, just understand 
He wasn't, he's never even been to the place that he has a burden for. And so we'll get into why that matters in just a moment. So just so you know, like if you're ever reading parts of the Bible, you're like, ah, what is that even in there for? That's not life-changing. Oh, believe it or not. Au contraire, mon frere. It is you that have the problem because if God put it in the book, it's profitable, right? And the church said, amen. All right. So um, amen for Susa. Uh, so verse two says, Hanani, uh, one, of his, uh, one of my brothers, came from Judah. Now Judah, again, another geographic, full of geographic lessons here. Judah is the southern kingdom of Israel, okay? That's, that's uh, where David is from and all that place down there, okay? So very important because... Uh, he was coming back to report to his brother. So this is a long ways, 900 miles, okay? 900 miles, and they didn't have cars and planes, okay? So you're talking uh, at least 100 days uh, journey um, on either walking or horseback, okay? So quite a, quite a bit to get here. So it says, one of his brothers came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them, uh, curious. I questioned them about the Jewish remnant, and... Whenever we think about that word remnant, it's going to be important, okay? Biblically speaking, it's a very important word, and it's not a word maybe we throw around all the time, like remnant. Uh, like that car was, was a relic and a remnant of what it used to be before it got put in the hands of someone that could make it work. Um, whenever we think of the word remnant, uh, we could also, we could maybe even think of food, okay? And I found out that my wife and I were raised with two distinct philosophies. And I think as I've grown older, there, I've, there's only two. Um, so in her household growing up, when someone cooked, um, you showed appreciation by eating everything that was on your plate. You clean the plate, okay? Um, and then I was raised in the second household, um, second style. Uh, I was raised like you eat until you're full, and then you get up from the table. Um, and so you can imagine that when you get married then, right? Does anybody see it coming? Does anybody see it, right? Like she cooks something and then I eat half of it and I'm like, that's it. And she's like, well, did you not like it? And I'm like, no, I loved it, it was great. Well then eat up, you know? <laughs> see, if you were raised in two different philosophies, I didn't even know. I didn't even know that was a thing out there, right? And so um, whenever we think of remnants, some of you have never seen remnants at the end of your meal, right? And so anyway, um, you'll have to use your spiritual imagination. Uh, but this remnant is what is left over. And he says that there was this remnant that he wanted to speak about. And he said, um, when they came from Judah, they were talking about the Jewish remnant that had survived exile and also about Jerusalem. And some of you are going to readily relate to that uh, because you came in here this morning and you can relate to the remnant, like barely surviving, hanging on by a thread. And it says, they said to me, verse 3, those who survived the exile are back in the province um, and are in great trouble and disgrace. Why? Um, because the wall of Jerusalem is broken down. So their protection was the wall. Their establishment was the wall. Like if they didn't have the wall, then they could be invaded and taken at any given moment. Now, historically, it's going to be significant because Ezra, the book before Nehemiah, has already went back and rebuilt the temple. And so you have worship there now, but you have worship without walls. And that's going to be 
later in the sermon, but you just need to know historically it matters um, that there's no wall to protect them. It says, the walls of Jerusalem are broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, he says, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. So I wanna ask you a starter question today. How big is your burden? How big is your burden? Because um, when we think about burdens, I think that our culture has kind of moved toward a style where you're trying to avoid having burdens, right? You're trying to unburden yourself. It, it naturally has kind of a negative connotation. And there are some burdens that we are, are born with, right? Like when you think about uh, if you don't have good eyesight, right? Uh, some people are just born like they don't have good eyesight, you know? Some people, like they can't run fast, you know? Never been able to run fast all their life. They're just, they're just born slow, you know? And you can practice all you want, but at some juncture, you can only get marginally faster. Some of you can't jump. Um, at all. And so um, there are all these things. And then like if we move into more of like the emotional category, some people are just naturally patient. Have you ever seen someone that is really patient, right? Has anybody ever seen that? Like I just by nature am not patient. My wife is not patient. We are not patient at our house. You know, if you are not moving, she's always like, you know, like, Galloway, Galloway. Like if I just graze through the kitchen, you know, on my way to get a snack, you know, and she's in there, it's like, Galloway. And I'm like, there's a lot of square space here. Like, I feel like you can maneuver around. She's like, get out, you know, and it's like, she's in a hurry all the time, all the time. Is anybody else married to someone that's in a hurry all the time? Anybody? Man, it's, it's exciting. Anyway, <laughs> some people just naturally patient. Sometimes people are just naturally more driven. You know, some people, like your children, you find out real quick, you know, like you ever seen one of those child, children, like they're little prodigies where you like give them blocks and they build a city and they're two years old. Has anybody ever seen that? It's like, you know, well, that's clearly going to be your smart one. Okay. Don't, don't think they're all going to be like that, by the way. And so, so anyway, um, there's some burdens that we're, we're born with, but where Nehemiah is trying to move us to is that there's some burdens that we are blessed with. There's some burdens that we are blessed with that you're, you're intended to take on some burdens at some juncture in your life that you are given the opportunity to bear, that you are indeed blessed. Here was Nehemiah sitting in a city 900 miles away, hearing a story about people that he's never met, about a place that he's never been. And all of a sudden, he has a burden for it. A burden that's driving him to a place that many people in here have never been. It says that he wept and that he fasted and that he prayed. Now, before I get into that, I just want you to see on a map, just to give you scale, because I know, I know my people, I know my sheep. Geography-wise, <laughs> you, 900 miles, you're like, how far is that, Tim? Is that like here to Denton? What is that? What is that, Tim? Okay. Uh, <laughs> that's Fargo, okay? That's Fargo, North Dakota, okay? Imagine you were getting on a horse after service, <laughs> and you were going to saddle it up and ride 900 miles for 100 days to get to North Dakota. Just, just think about it like this. How many people in your just general week this week woke up one day and were like, man, 
I just want to, you know, pray for North Dakota. I just want to pray for Fargo. You're like, yeah, it's getting kind of cold up here. Yeah, yeah, you know, don't you know? You know, that's my, that's my best Fargo I could do. Don't you know? You just throw a don't you know at the end. That midget doesn't run very fast, does it? The car, come on, people. I'm sorry, I shouldn't have said that. We'll just edit that part out later. Anyway, the reason why you didn't pray for North Dakota is because it's not in proximity to you, right? We kind of we think of our lives and we think about the burdens that we have. And whenever you think about the burdens that you have, it's just like everyone else. You think about your marriage and you want it to be the best they could be, so you, you have to worry about that, right? You think about your children. You want to raise good children. You want them to, to be able to succeed and thrive. You got your job. That comes with its own burden, doesn't it? You got to pay the bills, right? That's a lot of burden. If you go to school in today's school system and you try to live a Christian life, whoa, that's going to be a burden. You try to be a leader at anything, that's going to be a burden. Well, here is Nehemiah in this faraway place. He's got his own things going on. He's got his own things to worry about. And yet, all of a sudden, when he hears this report, something, something in his mind, something in his heart shifts. It's like, huh. And that made me want to challenge everyone this morning as our church you know, continues to grow. We continue to build like, um, we're going to need all of you to pull this off, right? There's going to be a harvest coming in our church history. That's going to be, it's going to exceed all things that we've ever done. And we're going to need every person to be a part of that. And in order to do that, we have to be ready. And we'll get into that in just a little while, but, but that burden has to be something that we take on, right? We take that on. And a lot of times in our Christian lives, I think that we have substituted busy for God's burden. And how I could exemplify that, I told you the challenge was going to come, okay? So here it is. If, if you think about your Christianity, what burden do you bear as a result of the weight of your Christianity? In other words, like if you took your life and you divided it into a pie chart. And this week, all right, this week, not, not 10 years ago, all right, I don't want to hear any stories about 10 years ago, 20 years, 20 years ago, Tim, I used to do what, I don't want to hear that, okay? This week, if you distribute your burden across a pie chart, what weight did you lift for the cause of Christ? And, and not even that, cause of Christ, the cause of Christ lived out through God's chosen mechanism his vehicle for the gospel is his church. So you need to start asking yourself, how am I bearing the burden of souls that are relics, souls that are remnants, souls that are just surviving, that they are barely hanging on? Because Nehemiah saw the remnant and he had this desire. He said, I want to revive the remnant. Because as we follow after Christ, once we've accepted God's free gift of salvation, and we've been saved by grace, not according to anything that we have done, but according to what God did at the cross and subsequently at the resurrection. We get that. That's free. Costs us nothing. But Christianity costs us everything. And at some juncture, his burden 
It has to become our burden. So if you're not lifting any weight, if you're not bearing any of his burden, wouldn't it be terrible if this incredible harvest was right now being planted and it's being watered? And if that harvest came in, but we were unprepared because we were unwilling to bear the weight. You see, if you're not careful and you get deceived and you, you make your life about your burdens, there's this crazy paradox. You see, if you're consumed with your burdens, you'll never take on God's burden. Because in your mind, you're like, I don't have time, Tim. I don't have time. I don't have the, re I don't have the mental capacity right now. And you're waiting for that opening. You know, when the kids are grown, you know, when the baseball season's over, when football season's over, when we get out to the job, when I get a raise, when I get out of college, when I get out. And here's the thing. This is the paradox. If you would take on God's burden, it would make your burden bearable. But when you make it about your burden, it wouldn't matter what you get. It doesn't matter what you, achieve. it doesn't matter how much you have. It will never be enough. At some juncture, you have to look at the lost souls that are out there. Paul said, I have done everything possible. I've become all things to all men that by all possibilities I might save as many as possible. Jesus said, I came to seek and to save that which was lost. The goal of the church is to realize there's people that we don't know living in a land far from here, even though they live next door. Far from here. Far from God. And at some juncture, we have to ask ourselves, is that our burden? Because it says that he wept, fasted, and prayed. Now, everyone in here has wept. And I assume most people in here, you've prayed. But when's the last time you loved something enough to fast? Very few Christians have ever done that. And I'm going to give you a homework assignment. Not this week. I'm going to give you a week to think about it. But I'm going to ask that we start fasting one day a week. You pick your day. One day a week. And if you want to be like sun up to Sunday, I don't care how you do it. But well, one day a week until we open 3330 El Dorado. And through that self-denial, we care. We show value that the remnant is worth it. That our hearts are for the people that we don't know, living in a place far from here. And that we would be willing to pay the price to lift that burden so that they could find the God that saved us. As we look at the rubble and we see the ruin, there's so many lives that if we would just take an interest, that we could breathe life back into those lives. And all of a sudden, that car that's been locked up, <laughs> that hasn't been going anywhere, that hasn't been able to run, man, it could have life again. I think most people in here can relate to a season where you were the remnant. And when Nehemiah found out about that, their problem became his problem. And that's the thing. When we don't see God's problem as our problem, then it allows us to live however we want. And we fill up our pie chart with all of these other things that are competing interests. And I'm gonna challenge you today 
that there has to be room for God, right? There has to be room for God. Because the only reason why you are sitting in this room is because at some juncture, someone thought that your weight was worth them bearing. And they decided they were going to sacrifice so that you could be rescued, so that you could be revived, so that you could be restored. And if someone was willing to do that for us, shouldn't we be willing to reciprocate that for others? It says, verse 3, I want to take a look at that because it really inspired me this week. I, um, I listened to some pastors as we were preparing. Uh, Titus and I are always building these bumpers and um, I say we, it's really him. Um, but but uh, one of them had some things to say on the walls that I wanted to pass on to you guys. Um, verse three, we'll read it again. It says, they said to me, those who survived the exile are back in the province and are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. I wanna talk about worship without walls. Worship without walls is trouble, trouble. And I'll, I'll exemplify this in a way that you will say, Tim, you got me, all right, that's me. Uh, by the fact that you're sitting in here, at some level, I'm going to make um, a deductive uh, statement here that you believe that there's something valuable here, right? Um, unless your parents made you come, or your wife, um, there's, there's something that is valuable here and you came to receive that, okay? I accept that, I accept that, that's great, I love that. Um, but whenever we look at worship, so you're saying like, oh, Tim, I'm, I'm getting my Jesus on, right? I'm gonna come, I'm gonna high five Jesus for three songs and uh, maybe one at the end. And, um, and then, you know, I'm gonna listen to what God has for me. And, you know, I'm gonna try to, I'm gonna try to live, I'm gonna try to live a good life, okay? I get that, I get that. But then you say to yourself, even though I'm worshiping, I don't feel like I'm getting anywhere. I don't, I don't feel like, you know, there's progression in my, I still have the same problem. We still are fighting the same fight in our marriage. My kids, uh, they're going crazy and doing things I don't want them to do. And at work, I can't say anything is better. I make more, but somehow I don't have more. Let me take a long, longer look. That was your, I'll give you. I make more, but I don't have four, have more. And the church said, thank you. If someone told you you would make the amount of money you now make when you were 16 years old, you'd be like, I'm rich. <laughs> Worship without walls. The walls are there for a very specific reason. Walls keep things from getting out, right? But they also keep things from what? Getting in. The last great battle that the Israelites fought is not with an enemy that was outside. It was with an enemy that was on the inside. And that last battle that they lost, it cost them everything. And they had to go into captivity. It cost them their walls. The temple that David helped Solomon build was raised to the ground and the walls were reduced to rubble and the gates were completely burned up. And I think what you'll find is that after your last great fight, whenever something has taken a Herculean effort 
for you that you are at your weakest moment after you've been through the battle. And you think about it in your marriage, right? You go through a hard season, right? And you're, you're, you're like starting to get to that place where little, little loops start going on in your mind. Like, I just don't know if I love them anymore. And, you know, I don't know if I ever love them. And, you know, I just don't feel it. You know, like, like love is not indigestion, by the way. Um, it, God, it wasn't that God felt like he loved you. God loved you when you were a sinner, okay? He made a choice to love you. Okay, anyway, I don't, that's a marriage sermon series. That's later this year, but whatever. Whenever we're thinking about Nehemiah, looking at this place and these people were in these walls were, were to the ground and we think about our own lives. Whenever you've gone through a season, like let's say you launched a project at work and you had to work all that time and you had to be away, right? Imagine you're a student and you're, you're trying to make grades, you're trying to be on the team, you're trying to do all the practices. When you have this Herculean effort, whenever you exhaust yourself, it'll be at your, your you'll, you'll find yourself at your weakest, most vulnerable moment. You think about David. David was at his best when he was on the run. When he was on the run from Saul, when he was fighting the battles to settle the land, when he was freeing his people, and then he made it to the top and he's, he's, he's there in the castle and he's finally on the throne and he served God fully. He's got his worship on. But do you think all that fight caused him to lose some of his walls? And then in just one moment of weakness, right, he looks out there and gosh, I don't know if y'all ever read the Bible and I'm like, like I'm rooting for like my team on a Sunday, right? It's like, come on, no, don't do it, David. Every time, every time I read it, I'm like, don't do it. And he did it. Just like you, right? And you wouldn't say that David didn't love the Lord. I hope you were not under the misconception that just because you love God doesn't mean you can't sin. You can't make mistakes, terrible mistakes. Why is it important to rebuild the walls? right? You got to have protection. Why do you need to establish yourself as a disciple? Why do you need to establish good habits? You know, buffers and boundaries. You know, why does Jesus say leaving father and mother, the two shall become one? In case you didn't hear it, all the in-laws in the house, all right? That's not your family, all right? The person that you're sitting to, that you hold hand, that you made babies with, that you stood before a preacher, priest, and said, I do too forever, that's your family. And the church said, it's not the other people aren't related. They're related. They're just not your family, all right? So anyway, whenever those walls get broken down, you are at your most vulnerable and you're probably going to be susceptible to temptation. That's why you have to constantly assess and say, are we, are we building the right type of family? Are we building the right type of concepts? Are we living by those? Are we putting things in our lives that keep the enemy out? and keep the God in. Rebuilding the walls is essential. In verse five, it says, Lord, well, then I said to the Lord, so he saw this burden, he's moved, he cries, he fasts, and this is what his prayer is. He says, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Now, this is the way you begin a prayer. Okay. I don't know how casual you are with your prayers, but like 
God, you know, like, no. Like, you need to recognize who God is, right? Like, I hope you're not under the misconception that, like, you know, we have a casual, you know, like, oh, he's just, you know, he's Jesus, you know, he's cool, man, you know. No, no, no. This is the God of the universe. Like, when you address him, put some respect on his name, right? He's like, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love. Before he makes an appeal, he wants to recognize who God is, who the God of the Bible, like before I ask, I want to recognize who you are, God, because my request is going to be directly impacted by how I view who God is. And he says, I recognize that you keep your promises, your covenant of love, you keep it, even, even when it means you have to punish our disobedience. That it's not because of you that bad things happen when we are disobedient, it's because of us. It's not the enemy that's on the outside, it's the enemy that's on the inside. And so, yes, while salvation is free, the blessing of God is not. The blessing of God requires obedience. And he says, God, you keep your covenant of love, and now let me make a request. He says, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your, what do you say there? Your CEO? Like, uh, like you should see my the car I drive. You should see the house I live in. You should see the neighborhood. You should see my office. You see all of my cool, my kids have these cool shoes. You know, like the, the Jordans. By the way, have y'all seen these shoes? This is random. <laughs> Titus brought home a pair of high tops a couple weeks ago. And you remember when your shoes got old and the little foam would be showing out of the tongue of your shoe? Does anybody remember that? Like you throw those shoes away or they're like your play shoes now? That's the way they're making them for $200. Does anybody know that? Is anybody aware of this? I have a problem. Anyway, he says, not the prayer of your CEO, of your most amazing model, whatever you want to say there. He says, your servant. And you'll find that word servant is used eight times in the ch first chapter. It's almost like there's a, there's a precondition. If you ever want to rebuild it, if you want to resurrect it, if you want to restore it, if you want to redeem it, you better start to see yourself for what you are. If you see God as this awesome God who created everything, then when you address him, what does that make you? You're the servant. I'm the servant. We're all servants. He's God. If we're doing Christianity right, aren't we just supposed to be doing what he wants? We're serving him. He said, the prayer of your servant is praying before you this day and night for your servants. Now, the Israelites at this juncture were not their servants, but that's what they were supposed to be. And so he's addressing God as who God should be, and he's referring to the Israelites as what they should be, servants. So as you're just evaluating your own Christianity in here today, you just have to ask yourself, as you're bearing that weight, are you serving the Lord through his vehicle, the local church? And if you're not, then let's get that right before the end of this service, okay? Just lean over to your wife and say, we need to start doing that, all right? Go ahead. Okay, so I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Uh, confession is the key that unlocks the gate, okay? Confession is the key that unlocks the gate and unravels the mystery. Have you ever heard someone try to use 
like nonsensical information as a distraction to accountability. Has anybody ever seen this? It's like, uh, well, why weren't you here the other day, you know? Oh, you know, there was a thing at the work and, you know, the practices for the kids and the, and the you know, the stress and some other stuff. You know, I can't really get into it, but there's a bunch of things and stuff and, you know, whatnots that, you know, and like, have you ever heard someone try, try to make up an explanation of why they're not committed? Has anybody ever heard this? Like, like, you ever done that? You ever do that yourself? Like, you just kind of use nonsensical, it doesn't really fit together. Like, it wouldn't hold up under scrutiny. Um, like, I want the truth. You can't handle the truth. Anyway, and so, you know, there's not a mystery. There's not a mystery as to where you are and why you're at, where you're at. You know what? The, it's sin. You don't want to know why there's ruin, why there was rubble? It was sin. They had sinned against God. He said, not only have the people sinned, this is one of the rare instances where he's like, and me. Now remember, he wasn't alive when this all went down. He's just paying the price for what his ancestors did, right? Like no one can relate to that though, right? Like you don't have any baggage from, okay. So anyway, so here is Nehemiah and he's like, but I know since I've been raised here in Persia that my family didn't do it right. I know that my, I haven't been living right. I know that I've made these mistakes, but now I have this burden. And before I can ever rebuild, I have to get right. In order to get right, I have to confess. And he said, I have sinned against you. You see, I think in our culture today, and this is going to be another challenge, I think we look at sin as I made a mistake, right? Like, oh, you know, I made a mistake. No, you didn't make a mistake. You sinned against a holy God. Do you understand? Like, imagine there's a God sitting on the throne above that took dirt and made it into a human with a brain so complex that a computing technology, ChatGPT will never be able to do this, okay? That was only for my technology people in the room, <laughs> over everybody else. Anyway, there's a God sitting on a throne above and when we sin, we offend him. Now he could eviscerate us without even having to lift a finger. He could just like, you are dead and you'd be dead. And yet he's patient with us so patient despite our mistakes. When you confess, you don't confess like, oh, sorry, God, you know, made a mistake. No, no. The way you confess is, God, I'm sorry. And now here's where it's going to get tough for some of you in this room. There's three words that follow I'm sorry. We're going to see if we know what they are. I'm sorry. I was you see, like, see, some of you, you don't know. You apparently don't know. Well, we're going to try again. So it's coming. You need the practice. Okay. This is what it sounds like when you apologize. Okay. I'm sorry. I was wrong. When is the last time you said that to your spouse? When's the last time you said, Hey man, someone said every day. Uh, when is the last time you said that to your parents? 
When's the last time you said that to your teacher? When's the last time you said that to your coworkers? When's the last time you said that to your God? See, that's confession. Confession is that you got to say it. Look God right in the eye. You didn't make a mistake. You sinned. I can tell you as the leader of this church, I'll say this many times. I am not Jesus. Not perfect. I'm a sinner. In order to lead this organization, it doesn't mean that I'm sin free. It means that when I sin, I confess it. And I try to do that as fast as I possibly can because I don't want to get behind the curve. Because as you get behind the curve, what happens is your heart begins to grow cold. And then you become indifferent. And then you stare at me with dead eyes for a 45-minute sermon because I'm preaching today. Don't worry, I haven't even got to the end yet. It's coming. But if you don't ever say you're sorry and admit that you were wrong, then you got a pride problem. How can we lead people if we're not going through the process ourselves? I just want to talk to all the men in the house. We got 70, 80 leaders coming tonight for an uprising training. That's our annual men's conference. The last big push before we move into El Dorado. How are you going to lead men where you yourself have never been? If you're not confessing, how are you going to rebuild them if you're not right this morning? You see, how are you going to lead your house, men, if you're not right with God? When your kids are struggling to find a shred of God in our culture today, surrounded by jack wagons, and I meant the other word, all day long, doing so many things that are ungodly, and at least they should be able to come home and say, but that's my dad. That, that, that's my, he's godly. And godly doesn't mean he's perfect. Godly doesn't mean he's arrogant. But when he's wrong, he confesses it. And he's building up the walls. Not to keep me from having fun, but to keep me from getting destroyed. It's not popular bearing the burden of God. It's not popular. It's not going to be common. But if you want to be a leader, you got to get right before you can help someone rebuild. And I'm going to wrap this up. I'm going to do two for the price of one. Verse eight, remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. Have you ever strayed when you should have stayed? Anybody? Anybody? Yeah. Yeah. Right? How many things have we lost as a result of just not listening? He says that he scatters the gains because we are unwilling to listen. You know, I was, before my back got so bad, I was, you know, a workout guy, five days a week. You can't tell. I'm just, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a burden I was born with. I'm just small boned, you know? It's just the way I am. I can lift all the weights I want, but I don't get big. And, um, you know, I would go in there and I'd see these guys. Have you ever seen the guys that like, 
yell and stuff like that while they're lifting and they always throw the weights down really hard. Does anybody, anybody ever see those? Like, I hate those guys, right? Now there's probably some envy level where I'm like, I can't lift that much, you know? I, I get it. I get it. That's what every one of those guys said right now. It's like, well, if you lifted that much, then you'd have to throw it down too. And they're like, rawr, you know, they throw it down, smash it. And, and I would always just look at them with contempt. I can't say anything because I'm just a little guy. And so... Whenever I was in that culture, there's three things that you need to be successful at working out. There's, there's the right lifting. You got to put in the work, you know, but then there's two other components that have nothing to do with the work. It's, it's discipline. You got to eat right, right? And then you have to sleep. If you don't do any of those three, you're wasting your time. So imagine that you put all that work in 500 pounds. Rah, rah. <laughs> And then you erased it all because you went out and ate McDonald's, right? You see, there's some things that you're going to have to put down if you want to be successful at bearing the burden of the Lord. And if you think that they're worth it, right? If you think that they're worth it, then that means that you're going to have to do without some things. You know, and if you had to do without some things, could you do it? Could you do without some of your income? because you wanted to invest it in the kingdom of God. Could you do that? Could you do without all your time because you'd have to give some of it back so that you could serve so that people could come to know Jesus? I mean, what if I told you you had to put down caffeine, you know? <laughs> I know, that got him in the first service. Like anything but that, Tim. Is that in the Bible? No, I'm not saying it is. I'm just saying, would you be willing to make any lifestyle changes whatsoever to bear the burden of the Lord. If you're going to have Christianity, it's going to cost you something. And the reason why you might be trying to be spiritual but not make any progress is because at some level, you might have your worship on, but you don't have your walls. And the area that you're being disobedient in, it scatters your gains. And that's why you're not making any progress. But the good news is this, verse 9. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if you're exiled, people are at the furthest horizon. I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling place for my name. Obedience allows us, allows God to gather what disobedience has scattered. Now, I love the word picture that he gives here. He said the furthest horizon because I know my people and I know my sheep. Some of you are so racked with guilt because you say to yourself, maybe I once was, but now I'm not. And I feel like I've gone so far, I've done so much that I'm out there on the rim, right? I'm out there on the horizon, I'm just a remnant, I'm just a relic, I'm locked up and I'm in a garage and no one even knows. Besides myself, I'm too far gone. I had an old buddy call me this week and um, wanted to meet, and so we got together. I hadn't seen him in years. And, um, you know, he was in a season. He was in the relic season, the remnant season. And um, he wanted to apologize for some mistakes that he had made and ignoring the counsel that was given to him and 
Of course, I was like, you know, I don't, you don't have to apologize to me, man. So, no, no, no. He said, I need to. In the 30 years of preaching and pastoring, I'm going to tell you, maybe three times that's ever happened. Maybe. He said he was sitting on a yacht, drinking a glass of Macallan, fishing. What would be the goal for most of us? Oh, if I could just get here. He said, and I realized I was all alone. Sin had cost him everything, cost him his family. Isn't it so deceptive, the stories we tell ourselves? If I could just get here, if I could just get here, if I could just get that. And he wanted to confess. And he wanted to rebuild. Nehemiah says, God, if your people get right, I know the type of God that you are. That even if they're out there on the furthest rim, furthest horizon, you do not give up on people. And God, that's what I'm appealing to. The burden I want to bear is that those people would be found. Those people would be saved. The remnant would be rescued. God, are you willing to help me do that? And I hope that you would know that no matter how far you've gone, how far you've got out there, if you would confess, I promise you, you are a prayer away from being right. But don't squander that rightness. You better start picking up that burden. If someone did it for you, then gosh, you have to do it. You can't not do it. And until your heart is broken for the burdens of others, then you are not a follower of Christ. Let's pray. Father, I ask in the name of Jesus that you help us, God, to feel your burden this morning. Just announce, God, of the burden of souls of men, that, God, we would desire to reach those people and pay whatever price is necessary that we would survey our own lives and find the areas that have rubble and ruin, that we would rebuild them by obedience for the sake of our family, for the sake of our community, that we would quit being self-absorbed. They would ask ourselves, God, what is it that you want? And then when he reveals it to you, it's gonna have to do with serving, I promise. You can't get out of it. You can't get around it. So I encourage you when he reveals it to you, embrace the burden. Weep, fast, pray, because the harvest is coming and we need you, even if you just walked in here today. But if we're not right and we're not healthy, then we're not gonna be ready. I pray today that you'd receive this. Would you stand and worship with us?